Welcome to Behavior Groups, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. Okay, Mr. Houlihan. Wanted to check with you to see if you feel like you have any cognitive superpowers. Well, I kind of a pretty much walking musical savant, right? Okay, for, for music before 1978, <laughs> oh, I give that to on. you. No, uh, but the no. rest of anything, no. I don't know. God, I've got a little more latitude than 1978. Well, the, the, you have latitude, but it's a, the savant part is where I'm oh. saying it was before 1978. You definitely are. You, you know, that's amazing. But Okay. Uh, well, but to answer your question, okay, we all have cognitive superpowers, at least according to our guest today, and that's Gabriella Rosen. Kellerman. Yeah. And Gabriella joins us today to talk about her new book, Tomorrow Mind, thriving at work with resilience, creativity, and connection now and in an uncertain future. It's a book that she co-authored with Martin Seligman. Wait, that, that's the Marty Seligman, the founder of positive psychology, right? Yeah, that Marty. Pretty yeah. cool, huh? Pretty cool. Uh, super. That is uh, super cool. Okay, but what is really cool is the background that Gabriella brings to this story. She is, you know, one of our classic underachievers, right? She's a medical <laughs> doctor, a behavioral science researcher. She's trained in psychiatry. Her FMI research is beyond reproach. It's just amazing. And she is currently the chief product officer at Better Up, which is a company focused on employee well-being. And then in her spare time, I think she's a professor at uh, Harvard. <laughs> oh, is that that school in Boston? That yeah, little yeah. one? It's yeah, not, okay. It's not yeah. too shabby. <laughs> <laughs> not too shabby at all, Tim. Not okay. at all. All right. So one of the premises of the book is that we spend most of our waking life at work. And too often we are too unhappy, too tired, or too sick this relentless change and uncertainty that come from work are wreaking havoc on our psyche and taking a toll on our relationships, mental health, and physical well-being. True, but uh, what Gabriella and Marty are talking about is they, they don't think that we are doomed. That, that's actually really far from it. They think that we might even have the potential to grow stronger through this era. That's the hopeful message that Tomorrow Mind brings. Yeah, we could uh, say something poetically about this, and we could go on and on about the great insights of the book and the conversation that we have with her. But instead, maybe people could just actually listen to our conversation with her. <laughs> what do you say, Kurt? Yeah, I say that was a cognitively super power, powerful insight, Mr. Houlihan. So I agree with you 100%. So listeners, please sit back with a stiff pour of tomorrow's brew and enjoy our conversation with Gabriella Rosen Kellerman. Gabriella Rosen Kellerman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Well, thank you for, for joining us today. We would like to start with a speed round and I think we know the answer to this because I'm looking at you with a cup of coffee in your hands, but do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> All day? Only in the morning. In the afternoon, I switch to tea. Oh, okay. Very, very cool. All right. If you had to take a vacation, would you prefer a vacation by the sea or by the mountains? 
oh, that is a really tough choice. C is going to be my first choice, but I also, I really love the mountains. They're just, and, it's just a different vibe. And I, and I noticed that I said, if you had to take a vacation, like it's a, it's a struggle to take a vacation. I mean, you know, when you, you take a vacation, me? yeah. Would you, yeah. When showing up at my house, kidnapping me. Um, okay. Our third speed round question uh, is a, a little different. We understand that your husband does some co-writing with his father, right? So we also know that you have kind of a famous dad uh, doing some really cool work. Would you rather write a novel with your dad or work on nuclear fusion with him? Huh. Wow. Such an unusual question. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'd work on nuclear fusion with him because I would learn so much. I mean, that's his, his expertise, right? What a privilege that would be. And I also have fond memories of being a kid and on take your daughter to work day and yeah. going into the lab with him and him oh. pretending I was working on a problem to help him, you know, and really he was just occupying me so he could be in a meeting, but it sounds great. <laughs> and I learned, I learned a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, your dad is 50 years working on some nuclear fusion stuff that has a massive breakthroughs recently in uh, him and his team. So congratulations to them. Yeah. And, and for you, when you're going to work with them next week and you, you'll start to learn all that wonderful <laughs> thank stuff. You. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. I hope I can contribute to <laughs> the future of our planet. Good. All right. Good. So in, in the book, you and Marty talked a lot about this, this new normal of an uncertain whitewater world. Is thriving in a whitewater world even possible? It is. And that is really the hopeful message of our book. You know, we're trying to look at it straight in the face and what we're up against. And then also use behavioral science as our uh, unique historical advantage to say, here's how we can overcome it. And we, and we really can. I think that that's fantastic. I, I, I love that you guys sort of uh, took that, sort of stepped out on that plank and said, you know, we're going to take this risk and do this. The book is called Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at a Work with Resilience, Creativity and Connection Now and in an Uncertain Future. What is a tomorrow mind. Let's let's start there. So we describe a tomorrow mind as having five main components, and the book goes through each of those in detail: prospection, resilience, innovation, or creativity. Social support is the S by way of rapid rapport and mattering, a sense of strong meaning and purpose in what we do. That acronym PRISM sums up those five. Um, and together, they provide us with a mindset that allows us to convert challenge into opportunity, to rise to the occasion, to respond resiliently to the things that come our way, and to flex some of our cognitive superpowers like creativity and prospection that we haven't had as much of a chance to flex at work in maybe the last three, four hundred arguably 2,000 years, um, and, but, but yet that we evolved those cap capabilities to do well in our original world of work, which was foraging, hunting, gathering. So in some ways, it's a celebration of this opportunity to return to those native abilities. I love that. It, it, tell us uh, about, you touched, talked about the superpowers, uh, specifically around creativity and prospection. Why are these human superpowers? Why would you call them that? And, and tell us a little bit about why those two, among all the others, stand out. Yeah. So they're superpowers both in their origin and in their importance today. So if you think about why did Homo sapiens become the dominant um, hominid species, right? We, we out-competed 
other hominids because we were able to be much more innovative in our way of life, right? And so just as one of many, many examples, if you look at the Neanderthal skeletons in Europe and you look at the Homo sapiens skeletons in Europe, uh, Neanderthal still had to evolve shorter forelimbs um, in order to stay warm, whereas Homo sapiens were able to go into those same climates and create fur coats for themselves. And we all used fire in different ways. We used it in a much more sophisticated way. We then developed the language that allowed us to pass that down generation after generation. So all of that, um, the, the ability, if you think about what it takes to make a coat, that's creativity. It's also prospection and planning because there's so many steps involved, right? You have to be able to see ahead. So those two together um, helped us become the dominant species on the planet. And then in today's world of work, we spend a lot of time talking about why, again, those two are, are so, so important. And the short version on prospection is that in a world of constant change where the threat is all about what's the next big thing coming, the more we can get ahead of it, either by envisioning what could come or by positioning ourselves with readiness to respond to a wide range of possibilities, the more we can restore a sense of agency. And then on the creativity side, there's been so much written about this, so not to kind of beat a dead horse, but it is really about how do we respond um, in innovative ways to these challenges as more and more of the non-creative work is assumed by computers and increasingly smart computers, what's left for us to do. And I, I think that there's a really positive, exciting side to this is much more creative. And it's about what can we come up with that's novel and surprising and useful versus repeating rote activities over and over. So you talked about prospection and kind of brought up two pieces of this. One is envisioning the potential future and trying to identify where it's going. But then you also brought up this idea of, of a readiness for a multitude of different opportunities. Is there is one aspect of that more important to kind of thriving in this uncertain world relative to the other? Are they both as important or how do they layer together? Yeah, so um, they're, they're equally important. It's helpful to understand how this works in the brain in terms of the, those, how those two things go together. So when we prospect, we do so in two phases. The first phase is fast, it's divergent, it's optimistic, um, it's more imaginative, and it relies more on the default mode network, which is our daydreaming network, to kind of think big and, and divergently. And then the second phase, which kicks in maybe after a few seconds of phase one, perhaps minutes of phase one, is phase two. It's much more deliberative. It's slower. It's evaluative. And so the range of things that we can be evaluating is really determined by what we can imagine in, in phase one. Um, part of being ready is having a wide range of ideas that we've imagined, and now we're, we're going to go ahead and try to prepare for. This was actually the whole idea behind the scenario planning mm. movement. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but they'd get corporations to sit around and think about what are some really outlandish futures that would just sink our ship. 
And they would come up from these very divergent ideas to what are actions we could take today that could position us ahead of it. And it was less about can we predict the exact thing that's going to happen and more about what are the ways that today we need to be ready and the actions we need to take to put ourselves in a, a more robust way of being. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. It reminds us a little bit of uh, Andy Duke's thinking in bets. Of yes. this, right? It also reminded me when I was reading uh, when you talked about sort of this this phase one, phase two. It felt a little. I wanted to sort of fall into the system one, system two thinking, you know, that that Danny Kahneman has made so famous. But it's not quite that, is it? It's not quite that, um, but I love the parallel there. And there are a few other uh, ways of thinking that have this sort of phase one, phase two. I think, you know, one is more about this, these less conscious default mode network type of activities. And one is more about the sort of executive control networks and salience networks and how do we then knit them together. And, and to me, it, that's, that's beautiful. And that means that convergence of theories tells us that we're getting close to some really core truth. Yeah. In reading the book, one of the things that I think both connected with Tim and myself is this concept that kind of, you at the very beginning almost of the book, you're starting and talking about asking the the right question or, or, or that too often we might be asking the wrong question. And you kind of highlighted it with uh, Marty going into the uh, talking, I forget if it was the Pentagon or who it w exactly mm -hmm. was about PSTD. And they were saying, how can we help cure these people? And, and he switched that around saying, look, 85% of the people come back without PSTD. And it's more about prevention. How do we get more people to come back without it? Because it's really hard once people have it. And I thought it was really interesting just in the question that was being asked was not the, the question that then ended up getting answered. And how often do we ask the, when we're thinking about these kind of future things, are we asking the wrong questions or how do we go about thinking about things maybe from a different perspective to ask that right question that might be more appropriate. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think um, that connects to this idea of the, the different ways of thinking creatively. So in that chapter on, on creativity, we talk about four ways of thinking creatively. And the one Marty demonstrated there is what we call figured ground reversal. So mm. the Pentagon was putting um, in the foreground uh, as, as the, you know, the figure we should focus on, they were putting the rates, prevalence, uh, suffering related to PTSD. And in the background was everyone who doesn't have PTSD. And Marty sort of switched that. He said, no, let's look at the background, everyone who didn't come back with PTSD, and let's understand why. Um, so that figure ground reversal is one of the, the four types of creative thinking that we outline. And so much of creativity at work today happens in teams, arguably all of it, because there's no kind of lone genius in the basement anymore tinkering the way that, you know, it, it may be used to. There there are, but by and large, it's happening in teams and large corporations and layers and layers. And one of the benefits of that is that we get to work with minds that are complementary to our own. So Marty's obviously tremendously gifted in figure ground reversal. A lot of his innovations have come from that. Um, you put someone like him in a room with someone who's more of a distal thinker, an integrator, a splitter, and you can come up with different ways of asking the question, different ways of solving for the challenge. I love that. I really love that. Uh, something that 
struck me, and this might sound really silly, but I love that some of the new terms that you introduced us to as readers in the book, <laughs> again, it may, it may be kind of silly, but things like positivity, resonance, you know, uh, from uh, Barbara Fredrickson mm-hmm. at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, time famine, which, you know, Ashley Willens has been talking about sort of the impoverishedness of our the human species in where we are today. Would you mind just taking a minute and just sharing with our readers a little bit about positivity resonance? Because I think this really super wonderful co- uh, concept. And yeah. uh, if, and if you wouldn't mind spending just a minute on time famine, because I think both of those really have impact on us today. Yeah, absolutely. And and they're both related to the challenge of connecting, um, mm-hmm. which you know, we, we need each other as much as we ever did for our well-being. And there are many elements of our world of work and the technology that we use that make it harder than ever to accomplish that connection. So positivity resonance coined, as you said, by Barb Fredrickson, um, it describes an embodied feeling of connection, uh, almost a scientific approximation of love, of what it feels like to feel love. Is And, and Barb's book is called Love 2.0. And so <laughs> when you think about those moments where you really feel in sync with someone and those are the moments where you probably could measure that your heart rates are sinking. Um, you internally are experiencing oxytocin and you're in your parasympathetic system. You're really in that rest and recharge space and the mirror neurons are firing. So kind of all of that is a state of being that she calls positivity resonance. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a, this is a, this is all bodily, biological, chemical chemistry stuff that's happening in our bodies. This isn't just, Ooh, it feels good. Exactly. And, and as a result of, of the, you know, it starts, psychologically through that lens of connection, we then experience all of these physical benefits. And um, it's an important concept for for our work for a few reasons. One is it's just really useful in explaining why connection is so important to well-being because it demonstrates those physical benefits, right? And it starts to explain why is loneliness as bad for our health as a, a smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or, or whatever the statistic is, right? It's because the, there are these true full body benefits for our immune system, for our heart, our circulatory system, right? Everything is benefiting from it. And I love that it encapsulates that. It also, though, it helps um, establish kind of what's the high and optimal bar for what connection looks like. You know, it's not a, uh, a like on Instagram. That's, that's not going to get you to positivity resonance. So it's kind of that gold standard of what you're trying to get to when you're connecting with someone in terms of getting to reap all the benefits of it. So that's how we use it in the book is, is this activity going to get you closer to positivity resonance? So and I, I know we still need to talk about time famine, but I just want to dig down deeper on this idea that the the like on social media doesn't allow us to do that. And kind of thinking about my kids uh, and particularly after the pandemic, through the pandemic and even after the pandemic, that they are interacting with more and more of their friends in a uh, social kind of online world, not in person as much. And is that worrisome for you? Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, some of our, our research has shown that you can get to a fair amount of positivity resonance remotely, but it has to be done synchronously, you know, like in a conversation like we're having, where we're hearing each other, seeing each other, 
even on by phone where you're hearing each other, but real time responding to one another. Okay. That shared sense of time is is important for establishing that. And um, you know, by contrast, most of the online interactions that people have today, it's asynchronous. So messaging or the social media platforms are primarily asynchronous. Um, and it's much more superficial, right? It's an exchange of a an emoji or a thumbs up or players on a screen interacting versus uh, actually, you know, human to human conversation. And it sounds so basic. It's almost painful to spell it out sometimes, <laughs> but that is what we mean. Um, and, and it is, it is a disservice to our, our children and future generations that they're not getting that kind of focused, synchronous social time together. Can our biology survive this? Is can future generations thrive? If I mean, there's so much in in the book about thriving, you know, how, what are what are the deleterious effects of uh, of social media not being synchronous and not having that that reinforcement? Yeah. I mean, I think what we're starting to see is a is a social correction around this. I think mm. that schools and parents are starting to become more aware of it. In some ways, the pandemic set us back because we all went remote. In other ways, it, it may have just accelerated us getting to the point of understanding the consequences. So perhaps now we can inter interact and intervene and whether or not we can survive it, I think it's really up to us. I think we have the tools to understand what we need and what we're not getting. And now it's a question of can we respond and, and course correct. All right. Well, well, we'll let you now go back to the second part of Tim's question. That was probably 10 <laughs> yes. minutes ago at this point about time famine. But can you kind of explain time famine to us and why that's of concern? Yeah. So time famine is the sense that I'm too busy to do it. Uh, I'm too busy with whatever <laughs> it is to go get coffee with you guys in person. Or, um, I, I'm too busy with cooking dinner to look over your homework and, you know, the sense of there's just too much to do and not enough time to do it. The consequences of time famine for connection are tremendous. So there's a lot of literature, including some famous studies we cite in the book around when you feel like you're in a hurry, you are less likely to help others. It leads to antisocial behaviors. Um, very problematic for, for us to live that way. Where does it come from? You know, it's not necessarily a brand new phenomenon that we feel a sense of time famine. It is new, though, that there is always some activity in front of us that we could be doing rather than connecting with each other, Rather, whether it's, you know, reading something online or responding to an instant message or uh, texting someone or email. There's so much busy work. And the word busy is in the term busy work, right? It's kind of intended to keep us busy and keep us in a state of time famine. And getting out of that mindset is a huge part of what it takes to overcome that barrier, what we call the barrier of time, to deep social connection at work today. You know, is there? Are, oh, excuse me. Go ahead, Kurt. No, you you go ahead, Tim. You probably there have a better are, question. Uh, of course, it's a better question. No, it's not. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, you know, Gabriella, we one of the things that you uh, and Marty obviously prized was having really good stories, having great narratives, because uh, each you know the chapters start with really engaging stories that are novel and new and fresh. And Graham Payne and uh, Robert Os uh, Van Orsten and uh, I'm screwing up his name terribly. Excuse me. 
Agnes Dunn was one of my favorites, actually, uh, just because, well, for a whole variety of reasons, but she's Irish. I mean, is, I think that's enough. Uh, I mean, one of our <laughs> colleagues, you know, it happens to be Irish by birth. So so that kind of hit. But but there are great stories that go along with them and really great metaphors and really uh, important connections back to the book. To stick with Agnes Dunn for just a minute, like what what do you think made her so resilient and so socially connected? What was it about her that... She continued to push through tremendous adversity to kind of figure out something that had not been really addressed in the late 19th century uh, packaging industry at Heinz, you know, pickling plant. Yeah. yeah so um, for, for those who don't know the story, Aggie Dunn was um, worked in the Heinz pickling plant uh, just after the Civil War, she was uh, an Irish immigrant and um, had left the pickling plant to go get married. And then uh, her father got ill and her husband uh, somehow passed away. So she suddenly had to return to work as a widow with an ailing father that she was taking care of. Um, and kids. And, and kids. And her uh, boss, Henry Hines, recognized in her that certain resilience and potential and eventually appointed her head of the home plant girls, which meant that for all of the other women working the pickling jars, using little spoons to nimbly put these pickles into glass jars, um, who were going through many things similar to her. Many were immigrants, many were war widows from the Civil War, uh, and they were all making this transition, importantly, to the new world of work in the factory she was there to help them with that. And that was one of the first and, and most significant investments that a major employer made in the well-being of their workers. And so, you know, we talk about that legacy and what it meant. I think for, for Aggie, just to immigrate at a young age is an experience that, you know, you can, it's either going to be really challenging in, in that time um, to, to immigrate from one country to another and then be working in a war munitions factory as she did at such a young age. I think it was like 13. That's going to either make you stronger or it's it's going to be really hard to come back from that. And so I think from a young age, she was responding with resilience and anti-fragility, getting stronger through these challenges. And I also have to believe that the work she did with the home plant girls were she was going to their weddings. She was showing up at the hospital. Uh, she was helping them fund their health care. That all of that would have contributed to her resilience and anti-fragility because she was doing such a tremendous service to these folks in a way that she herself didn't have. Mm. So I think that that probably was part of what helped her with her longevity and her ability to keep showing up through challenge after challenge. Yeah. Gabriella, can you Tell us a little bit about what resilience is, because I think many people think of it as bouncing back. But as you say in the book, it's really a little bit more nuanced than that. So what is, how would you describe resilience and, and the importance of it? Yeah, so we talked a little bit before about, about PTSD. So imagine that 100 people are all exposed to some sort of traumatic event, something really challenging that could potentially cause you nightmares, have a, a sense of fear of death. Those 100 people are going to have a range of responses, and it's going to look something like a bell curve. And at the far end are going to be people who are really crippled by that experience, and they develop um, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, as a result of that trauma. And it's very hard for them to go on functioning with their life. 
At the far end are people who develop the opposite post-traumatic growth. And those are people for whom um, the it's not necessarily they're happy that they went through this traumatic experience, but they're able to find great meaning from it. It helps put in focus, where do I want to devote my time? Um, it helps give them a sense of gratitude for having survived it. And so there's a very different response where you're actually growing stronger because of challenge. Think about also like how our bones grow stronger when we do weight training. Um, there, there's lots of mechanisms in nature for this anti-fragility. And then in the middle is kind of the, the, the messy rest of us. And we're generally bouncing back and doing okay. We're not harmed by it. There's people who are maybe a little bit on the harm side, a little bit on the post-traumatic growth side, but the vast majority of us are resilient. We're in the middle. That's also really important to understand that naturally we are able to bounce back. And what we've seen in tons of studies over, over the years, you know, 40, 50, even 60 years, arguably, of studying resilience is you can help people become more resilient. Uh, and it's what we call a kind of a foundational skill of thriving at work today because challenge after challenge after challenge, it's just going to keep coming. Um, and it's really not about getting through any one challenge. It's about being ready for all of them as they're going to keep showing up. Monday morning, Friday afternoon, everything in between. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I, it's just it's about being prepared for the next meeting and the, the, the next email because it just keeps coming. There, there will always, I mean, that's what work is, right? Is it seems to be a constant barrage of these of these kinds of things. Um, One of the things that you talk about too in resilience is this idea of self compassion. Kristen Neff, you know, about that. How does that play into building this resilience, this anti fragility, as you talk about? So in the book and at Better Up in general, we approach resilience as an outcome. So okay. we work on different skills, and then. Um, do you respond to these events in a, in a resilient manner? That's kind of the, the outcome level. And so we've identified five drivers of resilience, and we break those down in the book. Self-compassion is one of them. And um, it's you know a data-driven approach based on hundreds of thousands of, of people who've been working on this. Um, what that uh, analysis allows you to do is to say, okay, of the five, I'm actually really good on these two. Let me lean on those as my strengths. And then these three I are the ones I want to be actively working on in the gym, quote unquote, whether it's with my coach or doing exercises or however I'm going to be developing that and committing to building those skills. So self-compassion is one of them um, and tremendously impactful. It's, it's basically the act of viewing ourselves with the same level of compassion that we view others. Uh, so... If I have an embarrassing failure at work, I can be really caught in my own shame and um, maybe guilt for what I could have done differently. Uh, those negative feelings are, it's easy to get kind of trapped inside them. But if we imagine that it had happened to a close friend of ours, and then we think about how would we feel toward that person who just had this failure at work, suddenly it opens up a lot of different emotions of compassion, obviously, but the, the greater sense of empathy and caring and, and the other piece that connects us to is perspective. We're really good with other people at putting it in perspective. We're able to see for our friend that this is just a moment in time in the scope of their broader career. It's really not that big a deal. Everyone knows them for who they are. And this was, you know, just a blip and it humanizes them. There's positive stories, right? So that 
perspective is really can be really hard to access from within. But when we think about it for someone that we care about, it's a lot easier to, to get there. Can you talk about some of the other building blocks around yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, optimism is a huge driver of resilience. And this is the uh, explanatory style that says when I'm even when I'm in a, a really inescapably bad situation, I can think about a positive outcome for it. Um, you know, optimism's gotten some uh, taken some heat in the last decade or so for is it Pollyannish and can we kind of um, get into trouble because of it? I think it's just really important to understand that when we're in an optimistic frame of mind, that motivates us to take the steps we need to get out of a bad situation, whereas pessimism can be paralyzing and we don't actually do what we need. And so it's it's really about how do we get into an action-oriented mindset and optimism helps us get there. Um, self-efficacy is an, a third driver. So the confidence that I can do something about this, and that's a generalized um, sense of self-confidence and self-belief that's built up through witnessing our own successes over time. Cognitive agility is the fourth, and that is the ability to say, okay, I can quickly go back and forth between sort of the forest and the trees level. And at the forest level, I'm scanning for what do I need to be paying attention to? What are the opportunities here? What are all the possible interpretations? And then picking the right area to go deep and then kind of going deep in that in that spot and then shooting back up to the forest level when it's indicated. So not getting stuck on any one tree longer than it's adaptive for us to do so. So we've got cognitive agility, self-efficacy, self-compassion, optimism. optimism. We're missing one. Emotional regulation, of course. Emotional regulation, which is the, the really the core of everything. So the fifth is emotional regulation, um, which is our ability to not get overwhelmed by our emotions to the point where we then take actions that are not in keeping with, um, you know, our our truest self, our truest, most authentic self. And so all of the most effective means of therapy today, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or ACT, it's really about how do you gain some distance from your emotions, take a pause, and then reappraise cognitively what was happening with your emotions, what triggered them, how do you make sense of them? How do you leverage them? Because there are some there's some wisdom that's important there. And then how do you get what additional information you might need before you actually take action? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know Tim is getting ready to ask a, a musical question, but I have one question before we get there. What's it like writing a book with Marty Seligman? I mean, I, I just, I have to, I mean, he has been a rock star in this world, a, a driver of, of different things. And I just want to know what it's like writing a book with him. Give I mean, us the dirt. This is the opportunity yeah. to just get all the dirt on him here, Gabriella. No, it's uh, it's an incredible us. honor, um, oh. really incredible honor and privilege to get to write about resilience with Marty, who was thinking about this and teaching the universe about it 60 years ago, you know, it's, it's wild. Um, and I'm filled with gratitude and awe that I get to do that. Um, I think one thing that people might not expect about writing a book with Marty is he's a really 
he's a beautiful writer, which people know from reading his books. He's really committed to the craft of writing, and he mm-hmm. takes very seriously the picking the right words, um, not wasting sentences. Um, just learning from him as a writer has been a really unexpected uh, delight and benefit of the process. We had a conversation with Linnea Gandhi, who did work with Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein. And it was interesting because she talked about the different writing styles between them. She Mm -hmm. was, so it sounds like Marty is very similar to Daniel, who would spend, you know, a day, you know, crafting a a sentence or a a paragraph just to make sure it was absolutely right. And um, she said, Cass could write out a chapter in in an hour. And, you (laughs) know, it was just there. So it's it's, it's interesting, different people's writing styles and and what you can take from that. But you're absolutely right. Marty has been, um, you know, beautiful writer and different pieces, but it is interesting to know that he takes that really seriously. So, so thank you for that insight. I think Tim was hoping that you would give some dirt about some, uh, oh, no. you know, like, no. oh, yeah, he he he, he eats that's... peanuts when, when he does this and spits out the shells. I don't know. So. As Austin Powers would say, that's not my bag, baby. <laughs> um, sorry, Your Mary. bag is music, though. So it I, is. I, I, I it know is. you're going it there. I was so heartened to see you uh, bring up the Neil Young story uh, when he uh, was regarding Spotify when he kind of challenged the workers to, to leave and as, as well as challenged um, and was accepted, uh, many of his cohorts uh, left Spotify, which made me feel really good because jives with my own is a, you know, thoughts about Spotify. But uh, what I wanted to ask you about was another musical thing. You, you referenced Stephen Sondheim uh, with, with a quote from uh, Sunday in the park with George. And I was wondering, was, was that on the, you know, was that on your playlist while you were writing the book? And and do you listen to music while you're writing? I listen to a lot of music. I don't typically listen while I'm writing. I'm very, very focused. I like to actually have as little noise as possible while I'm writing and even, you know, wear noise-canceling headphones if I need to. My house is not a quiet place, so that is a, a <laughs> challenge to find. But um, we all have our ways. The Sondheim quote was Marty's. Um, and oh. I believe he is a is a fan, and you'd have to ask him yourself if it's on his playlist. Oh, uh, what is on your playlist? Let's ask that. What are the types of music that you like to listen to? Then, yeah, I have. I really listen uh, to a very broad set of inputs. I think some of my go tos. I'm a big folk and bluegrass fan. Um, you know, Nickel Creek is is always a a favorite of mine, um, the kind of singer songwriters is something I'm, I'm drawn to. I also like R&B, so that's on my playlist in, in various ways in different times. And then my one of my kids, my oldest, is plays piano. So there's often a lot of music in, the, in our house and usually classical, depending on, on what he's working on. So we're, we're treated to a a fair amount of, you know, that the Bach in our in our house, and we have dance parties with the kids uh, to a mix of that, and then you know, Pharrell. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the first time that Bach and Pharrell have been mentioned in the same sentence, much less the same podcast here for us. That's, <laughs> that's pretty fantastic, Gabrielle. It's really a treat to have you as a guest today. And we just want to say thank you very much for, for taking time to join us and share your thoughts about Tomorrow Mind. We ardently uh, support it and advocate people go out and get it. So so thank you much. Thanks for being a guest thank today. Thank you so much. Thank you for this fun conversation.
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Gabriella, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever comes into our positively focused future brains. That's a really nice little combination of positive psychology and the the very prospective aspect of the tomorrow mind. Nicely yeah. done. Thank you. Thank you. I, I thought about that for a whole maybe three seconds. So, you know, that was uh, that's a long very... time for you to think about something. <laughs> that's so. a long time for me to think. So, uh, yeah, that would be that would be true. So, Mr. Houlihan, what were you thinking with this conversation? Well, let's start with some things that we got to talk about. There was one thing I want to talk about the book that we didn't actually talk to Gabriella about. But, but I want to start with the convergence of theories. I know this is kind of a fine point, right? This isn't like a major point, but it struck me as one of the really cooler things that she had to say. And she was talking about how these different theories come together. And, and, and I'm just going to quote her here. She said, you know, you think more or less about these less conscious default mode network types of activities. And then there's another theory about the sort of executive control networks and salience networks. And how do we knit them together? And she said to me, quote, that's beautiful. And that means the convergence of these theories tells that we're getting close to a really core truth, end quote. And like that was sent shivers up my spine when she said, this is like when science starts working from all these different perspectives and we start to come together to understand something from all these different perspectives, this is where we understand the core truths. And again, it just, it made me really happy to hear a brilliant scientist like Gabriella talking about that. It's an interesting piece, and I, I don't know if everybody who's listening is going to agree with me, but you know the way that I define behavioral science, and I think the way that you defined behavioral science as well, is that behavioral science isn't a field or study in and of itself. It is this conglomeration of psychology, sociology, social psychology, behavioral economics, neuroscience, uh, a, a variety of different fields that are all looking at the human behavior and how human behavior and thought is influenced by a variety of different things. And so this point that you're talking about that Gabriella brings up, this convergence of theories, I think is one of the reasons that I really love behavioral science, because you're not just getting the psychology insight that you would like, this is about the theory of mind and how people think, but it's also about the sociology aspect of what that, how groups influence, how culture influences, and it gets into neuroimaging and all of these. And when you find some of those truths that come across all of the genres, like change happens because of this. And we see that in psychology, but we also see it in sociology and we also see it in the neuroimaging work and seeing where this this shows up. Uh, when all of that happens, I think that's really, as, as Gabriella said, close to some really core truth. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. We see this in the way, like Carnegie Mellon University organized a group of researchers and they call the social and decision sciences department. And that's got economists and psychologists and mathematicians and astrophysicists. Yeah. Right. And sociologists 
all in the same department. And there's, and I think what they're striving for are core truths. When you bring all these disciplines together, you get all these different perspectives. This is, this is the diversity in thought that enhances our, our human ability to actually come to core truths, to actually reach better decisions, to have better observations when we get lots of ideas, right? So true, because we get so locked into the status quo or this perspective of how I have been looking at the world. And sometimes that needs to be shattered. That needs to just be broken. And the way that you break that is by having somebody with a different perspective come in and share their truth. And what's really powerful is like what we're saying is that shatter my break my glass and break their glass and break everybody else's glass. And out of that crazy chaos, we actually go, but we all agree on this. And when we all agree on this, that's where you go, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, it could actually augment our overall story. Henry G. Henry G. Uh, did this like in his book with the the short history of the world. He combined, you know, paleontology and and physics and and uh, chemistry and biology, and that's you know this is part of what made it so delightful. So that yeah, well, you know, anytime you try to you know encapsulate the entire history of the world in a 200 plus page book. Yeah. Hey, let's, let's look at the entirety of this. Not just the G, you know, the geography and all the earth science stuff, but just the also animal biology and human psychology is that. That was fun. Yeah. All right. Okay. So yeah, I I just wanted to just say that that was my sending a a chill up my spine moment. How, How about you, Kurt? This comes from the book as well as with this conversation And it's about the way that we ask our questions and are we asking the right questions? And the story about Marty uh, talking with the Pentagon, where the Pentagon was asking him, like, all right, we have all of these soldiers coming back who have PTSD and what can we do in order to, you know, cure them of this? And Marty looked at this differently, right? He he had this idea of that's not the right question. The right question is if 15% of people are coming back with PTSD, that's 85% of the people that aren't. And let's yeah. understand why they aren't where these 15% are. Right. And, and, I, and I loved that piece because I think for me and just in the work and life, what I've realized is that you know, we can always find the answer. Not always. We can we can find the answers pretty easily, and particularly in this day and age with Google and and you know AI and a variety of other things. It's asking the right question that becomes the real superpower. Yeah. And yeah, I love this idea of how do we think about the questions that are being um, proposed to us or that we're proposing to others, and how do we take a look at that information. He, so he changes the foreground for the background, right? Yeah. The Pentagon folks are coming in and saying, let's let's all focus on this 15% of the people who are really struggling with PTSD. And that's in the foreground. And he switches that and says, let's bring the background of all those people who are not suffering to the foreground. 
uh, what was the Kurt? What was the term that he used? Uh, figure ground reversal. Figure ground reversal. It's such a cool idea that anybody can can take away from the from this conversation and use in their own life, right? To say, okay, yeah. we're really focused on, you know, how can I get the my my son to cut the grass? You know, I just want yeah. him to cut the damn grass. You know, why is he not cutting the grass? It's like, well, wait a minute, why is he doing something else? Like, what's his motivation to do anything? Maybe yeah. we. we you know, switch the foreground and the background. I think it's just well. A cool and think idea. about this. Think about this from business. And I think in, in prior to getting on air, we were talking about this. This idea that you've used this concept already within the work and kind of thinking about the questions that are coming to you. Like, all right, how do we get? Um, you know, how do we get these new clients? Right. Well, all right. Let's take a step back and maybe let's look at how you know. How are we keeping the clients that we have? That we have, you know, right. just, why, are you know, the, why are the customers that we have staying customers? Yes. Like, what are we doing there that's working for them? Yeah, and and maybe just, and that's a pretty, you know, light version of this. But I think even just that light version can really make a big difference of this. It's interesting, too, just going back to PTSD, I, I heard a conversation, and I think Gabriella talked a little bit about this, but, you know, there are some people that go through traumatic um, instances and they actually grow from that. And it's called PTG, post-traumatic growth. Yeah, and there's yeah. a whole line of research, Richard uh, Tedeschi, Tedeschi. Is, that, yeah. is that how I pronounce yeah. it? Richard Tedeschi does that. Um, and again, it's taking, it goes back to, uh, who did we interview? The the non-obvious person. Um, the uh, Rohit Bargava? Bo- yeah, yeah, right? It's It's sometimes it's this, right in front of our face, but it's not obvious. We don't pay attention to it. It goes back to this figure ground reversal. We're so focused on what's kind of that issue right in you know front of us that we don't take that look and look at the background or look at what's right next to it, even though it's very clear. It's the invisible gorilla, right? I there mean, it is. we're so it focused is. in on watching those baskets that we, we miss the, the, the gorilla walking through. It's the inattentive blindness that we have on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say, lastly, I just wanted to call attention to something that I did see in Gabrielle and Marty's book, where they highlight these wonderful stories like Agnes Dunn and Graham Payne and uh, Robert Van Orden. These are fantastic stories of resilience and how they continue to remake themselves throughout their lives. Uh, And I just... My observation on this is that these are great examples of people who bear this resilience in their DNA. Like they have that rare cocktail of genes in their bodies and their minds that just help them become this. And I don't know if we can just learn how to do that from these examples. I think they're great striving or great like illustrative kind of examples. But it's just like reading a book about Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Warren Buffett. I can't be Warren Buffett. I can't be Steve Jobs. Only Steve Jobs can be Steve Jobs. But I'd, I'd like I'd like authors to look more toward what are the opportunities that we can learn from. Are there processes or approaches to life that we could adopt without having the DNA of Agnes Dunn, who just kept fighting her way through life at the Heinz Company at the end of the nineteenth century? You know. And, and I think not to not to be 
contradictory, but I think that there were obviously pieces of Tomorrow Mind that get into the process and the the yes. things that you can do, yeah. right? The, 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 the prism figure model. Ground, the prism model, the figure ground yep. reversal, various different things. But I think it's very true. We tend to focus in on those people that we put up on the pedestals of the success models. And sometimes there's an aspect, this is the other piece of this, like sometimes they have something in their DNA, as you mentioned, that that's just the way they're wired. Sometimes, as Annie Duke will say, there's a whole bunch of luck involved. And we're looking at these as role models and we emulate exactly what they do. But, you know, just getting up at 5 a.m. every morning, there's a lot more people that get up at 5 a.m. because that's what, you know, these high powered people that have been successful do that never make that success, right? It, the, that getting up at 5 a.m. isn't the, the That's key. That's not the and key to success. To, yeah. And we need to understand the difference between what people do and what is actually driving the success that they have. And for resilience yeah. in some of those things, I think it's really good to be aware because I think uh, awareness, although um, we can say that knowing is is you know not half the battle and not even that right, right, um, right. But I I do think that knowledge around some of this is really important. And then it's going. Um, what are the skills that we can learn in order to help us become more resilient? That can help us become more cognitively, uh, cognitively well, agile. So, right? so, this, so do you, does that lead you to the building blocks, uh, that Gabrielle and Marty wrote about? Do you, do you think yeah, that those I, are, those are skills that we can adopt, right? Well, but some of them, degree. right. So, but this idea of, and, and th- we talked about this prior too, is optimism was the one that kind of stood out, I think for you, right. This idea that optimism is a building block, but is optimism, built into our DNA. Yeah. Can and you learn every, can you learn to be optimistic if if you're if you're just not born that way or you and, grow and, up in an environment. Yeah. And again, everything I know and I'm not an expert in this. So if there's if people listening to this they're uh, if I, what I'm saying is wrong, please correct us um, and let us know, but you know, there that we have a that there is a scale from super, super optimistic about everything in life and they're almost Pollyanna to a scale of super pessimistic and the world is going to crash and burn. And all of us, at some point, we kind of have this base point uh, that we kind of are on. And some people's base point is more on that optimistic side. Other people's base point is more on that pessimistic side. Now we have a a, A range range that we tend to fall within. So even if we're in, most of that is probably and again, I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming that is more of a, a a normal distributive curve that most of us fall somewhere in the middle. And so, yeah, depending upon circumstances, environment, and other things, we can be optimistic one day and more pessimistic another day. Right, right. And so there's probably parts within that that we can learn to look at things, gratitude, you know, work, all sorts of that kind of stuff I know tends to have us focus more on that positive aspect. And so we can show up more positive every day, but my positive uh, and improving it is probably not going to be the same as your positive and improving it. And that base point may still be so far apart that it doesn't necessarily do it. And that's okay. That's okay. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. It just means that it's there. And then I think that, you know, she also talks about self-compassion, self-efficacy, 
cognitive agility, emotional regulation. And again, I think on all of those, we probably are very similar to what we just talked about with optimism, that there's probably an aspect of that, that there's a base point that we all have on some continuum. Mm -hmm. And there's a range that we fall in. And yeah, can we adjust it within there? Probably, but you also have different starting points. And so those different starting points are going to influence the outcome that you get. Yeah. And the journey that we're going to be on to make any kind of changes to those things. Yeah. Okay. Shall we wrap things up? Yeah. We got pretty philosophical there. I this was a, that. this was a, yeah, deep one. All right. So, uh, as always, thank you listeners for listening in as always, if this was of any value to you of any interest, we would love Love, love for you to share it with your friends, families, coworkers, acquaintances, the person you just met at the bus stop, you know, the the barista at your local coffee shop. Say, yes. hey, you should listen to this behavioral grooves thing. It is awesome. And go out and do that. It costs you nothing. It, it is a free way to help yeah. us out and to grow the show. And we uh, greatly appreciate that. Or when you're on the train. Do like Nick Epley or Vanessa Bonds and just say, hey, have you checked this out? <laughs> to the person that's sitting next to you that you don't even know, that you won't even see ever again. Just There you go. You know what we need, Tim? We need to get some behavioral groove stickers out on the website that people can <laughs> people can buy. And then you don't even have to talk to them. You can just put the behavioral groove sticker on the back of your backpack or or your computer or whatever, and then somebody's going to start the conversation with you. Like, what is that? What's that behavioral grooves thing? And then you can share it. So, with that, with that, <laughs> listeners, I don't know where we're going to go with that. But, but yes, and Tim, yes, and come on, you know this. Yes, yes, and. I want to wrap things up by saying thank you for listening. And we hope that our conversation today and our curving session and our conversation with Gabriella Rosen Kellerman help you this week to go out and find your groove. <laughs>